from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. So welcome to the Supply Chain, uh, Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. Uh, Irv and Steve are here and I uh, want to introduce Natalie Jaworski. Natalie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Let me give you a little bit of background if you don't mind me just taking a moment. Um, Natalie has 20 plus years experience in various roles across supply chain and procurement for Johnson & Johnson. Currently, Natalie has the honor of leading J&J's Procurement Citizen Agenda, which focuses on managing risk and protecting reputation through their ever-growing supply base. As a significant contributor to public-facing health for humanity goals, supply chain sustainability, risk diversity, and inclusion are managed by her team on behalf of the enterprise. Natalie prides herself on being a dynamic and servant leader who thrives on leading diverse teams to successfully achieve results that they never thought possible. Natalie has a passion for talent and organization development. She currently serves on the board for WeConnect International has served as a sponsor for the NA Procurement Women's Leadership Initiative and continues to dedicate much of her time to coaching and mentoring professionals. Natalie has been awarded several leadership awards throughout her career, including the CIO Award for her coaching and mentoring of employees across Johnson & Johnson. Natalie is a proud graduate of Penn State uh, with a BS in Business Logistics, so it's always great to have an alum on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Glad to have you here with us today, Natalie. So procurement citizenship is quite a daunting name and very evolved. So tell us where that came from and, and, and how we ended up. Yeah, there. for sure. Um, so it's interesting. Your word choice is daunting. I find it exciting. <laughs> Maybe it is a little daunting too if I, <laughs> if I stop to think about it. Um, so the, our term of procurement citizenship honestly evolved at Johnson & Johnson. And I'll, I'll tell you what it, it means today and a little, maybe a little bit about how we got there. So, um, it was really shaped because, you know, at Johnson & Johnson, we have our credo, which guides everything we do. It guides all of our decisions um, internally. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to convey it to people until you're, you're, you live and breathe inside the walls of J&J and you realize, no, it really is, is not this document that hangs on the wall, but is in fact something we live by. And the credo it, it essentially tells us that we need to care for um, our patients who use our, our products and services and customers. Um, our employees, our communities in which we live and work, and ultimately our investors as well. And the theory is that if we're taking care of all those those things, the company will will be very effective and be uh, you know financially sound, and we'll be able to continue to create and innovate even more. So our credo really guides us, and um, you know procurement is is no exception to that. And the way that we look at our supply base. Uh, we first of all we spend thirty billion dollars a year roughly at Johnson and Johnson, and we work with over fifty thousand suppliers across our, our network. So uh, we feel that there's a lot of power in how we choose to spend that money and whom we choose choose to spend it with, and um, how we how we protect our business um, with the partners that we choose. So uh, we are always looking to select partners that um, our that, that are aligned with us philosophically and the way we approach things with the credo and such. So, you know, the idea of procurement citizenship really evolved and, and came to be a name we put around all of those, all of the, um, you know, uh, areas that we focus on in addition to, you know, the basics of procurement, which is, you know, buying and, and securing materials and services for our business. So for us, the definition includes uh, global supplier diversity and inclusion. 
It includes um, uh, environmental sustainability. It includes human rights in the supply base, and it includes supplier risk. So for each of those four areas, we also have, I have peers within Johnson & Johnson that look after the very same thing, but inside the walls of J&J, and I'm looking, um, me and my team are, are looking after it outside the walls of J&J with those 50,000 partner plus partners that we we work with. So a lot of partnering, a lot of matrixing, a lot of, you know, working together across the organization. Um, so those things aren't handled differently. It's just different groups are accountable for them because they're each big bodies of work. Um, so I work with my peers in each of those areas to shape the programs that we use to deploy uh, citizenship, um, you know, uh, programs and such across across the function. Specifically, as it relates to supplier diversity and inclusion, is there a definition of what that what that uh, contains? Yeah, abs absolutely. So, you know, our supplier diversity and inclusion program actually started in 98, which is the year I graduated Penn State and joined Johnson & Johnson. Um, and ironically, one of my first buying roles, actually, the one of the things that I was given was like, okay, so we have this supplier diversity thing. We buy from the government and we have certain expectations in our contracts that we need to live into. We were really, I, I remember very clearly, we were really trying to, figure out what does that mean. So it did start very heavily in the U.S. and the definition um, uh, honestly differs by country. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But our program really started in the U.S. based off of the government definitions of what is a small business, what is a diverse business. And the categories that they uh, were really most concerned with were women-owned businesses, um, minority-owned businesses, which are you know typically Hispanic and Black-owned businesses, uh, veteran-owned businesses, hub zone suppliers that are in hub zone areas around the U.S., um, uh, LGBTQ, I'm sure I'm missing a few, uh, but they have very specific category definitions um, of businesses that need to be owned and operated by that category of a individual, whatever category they, they fall into. And so, again, at first we knew we had a contractual obligation with the government, but the more that we explored this and the more we brought our credo into it, we actually pivoted and changed our targets from what does the government, you know, mandate to us in terms of numbers in a contract uh, versus what do we really think we can and should be doing as a corporation of our size and a corporation who, you know, cares about the world and cares about, about healthcare. Um, and so as that evolved, you know, our goals, yes, we still have our commitments we have to meet to the government, but we far surpass those those now because we we actually named our goals our credo goals. So we would get away from, hey, what do we have to do to, as a minimum to meet the government expectations here? Hey, this is really who we are as a company and how do we how do we best live into that? So um, the definition is is that for the United States, right, of those categories I listed, but as you go around the world. Um, it's different in every every part of the world, you know, and, and uh, that's been a big um, uh, challenge and uh, that we've gladly accepted as we've expanded our program globally. We have we have expanded the definition in each of those countries. One of the things that we really do make sure we do is that we partner locally with the advocacy organizations and certification bodies that can certify that, in fact, I am a women-owned business, or you you are an LGBTQ business, and it's owned and operated by that individual. Because in the very, very early days of supplier diversity in the U.S., you had situations where a man may own a company, and then he would just put his wife's name on it to say, oh, well, now I'm a women-owned business, right. which is really defeating the purpose of what we were trying to accomplish. So um, again, I, you don't really see that anymore, I think, because of the development of this and the maturity of this space and the certifications. And that's one of the reasons we continue to rely on certifications. Um, but, you know, as we go in different parts of the world, social enterprises are very important. And those are businesses that are for profit businesses, but they operate 
um, primarily to, they put all their profits towards a social cause, a very specific social cause. So we even have that in some locations. In South Africa, you have um, Triple B, double E, which is um, uh, Black Empowerment. Uh, you have uh, Aboriginal businesses in Canada and Australia, although recently they stopped calling it Aboriginal and I'm not remembering what the new name is, but uh, they've uh, amended that. But it is different everywhere around the world. We're just very careful to be clear on what we count and what we don't count. And everything we report is audited as J&J because we just want to make sure we always maintain integrity in, um, in what we're actually doing. So how would you, you said um, this initiative started back in 1998 um, and, uh, you know, that's 20 some years ago. Um, wh where do you think the company is now, um, you know, related to where they started and what their goals are? You know, is it is it a mature enterprise from a, uh, a citizenship standpoint or is it still evolving and changing and growing? Yeah, I would I would say both when we were constantly, you know, uh, benchmarking to make sure that we're always challenging ourselves um, because we do feel as though we should be staying at the the forefront of this this space um, and you know especially in places where like the US right where we have private health care and you know we want everyone to be able to participate equally in our healthcare system and in order to do that we need to have you know wealth spread more evenly and we need uh, better job opportunities across um, you know, the entire population, et cetera. So, so we, we see the very clear linkage between our agenda of changing the trajectory of health for humanity, which is a very, that's a daunting task. <laughs> um, you know, that with, um, with, with the role that we play in supplier diversity and inclusion, there's a reason why that's really important in our overall mission as a, as a company, um, in addition to it's just the right thing to do. And we're known for just doing the right thing. But what, you, what we'll see in these, so I, I think that in a lot of ways, we're a leader, um, but this is also just one of those spaces that's always evolving and you're always learning. And we really do treat it as a non-compete space with other companies. Um, the peers that I work with all the time are some of them are, are direct competitors to us. But when it comes to supplier diversity and inclusion, we are not competitors. We're, we're very much helping one another develop and evolve our programs. But what I, I will say is there's a couple of indicators to me that suggest when that, that our program is a bit more mature than maybe some some others. And one I would say is. Um, first of all, our our business connectivity. Our, our, it, this isn't sort of something procurement does on the side. I will tell you, it started that way, right? Like all all programs have to start somewhere, and it started in procurement, um, but it really has grown and evolved to truly a business imperative. Something that that our business partners very much you know get behind. And I will tell you, we're even at a place now where. Um, very large parts of our organization actually have goals within their leaders, uh, goals and objectives for the year around supplier diversity and inclusion, right? We, um, you know, what gets measured gets done. So while procurement has always been measuring that and, and um, you know, the, 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 the numbers help us make sure we're continuing to move forward, but... Uh, you know, you, you really need something to work towards. And, uh, and so a lot of our business partners now are, have either already put in our global or in their goals and objectives for the year. So for example, our supply chain organization, which is a huge part of Johnson and Johnson in terms of numbers of employees, they have it built into their goals and objectives. R and D we're working towards that, um, which is another huge chunk of the organization. So that is one piece. And, and just the fact that we're talking about it, there's commitment about it. We have business sponsors outside of procurement for driving this spend. 
um, and working and partnering with advocacy organizations, going outside of J&J, doing things like this, having conversations about the work we do, learning from others and the work that they do. That that wealth is that, that we spread that wealth across leadership. It's not just me and my team that are that are doing that. Um, so I think the leadership engagement is one really key criteria that tells me is usually an indicator when an organization is is um, maturing in this space. Um, another another uh, uh, place is when you see organizations that aren't just counting, right? You have again, you have to count. You need something to work towards. You need a you need a bar set, right? Um, but uh, it's not just about hey, did I meet that number or not? It's really about well, how am I getting these, how am I helping these businesses? How are we as Johnson & Johnson, which is a company of means, we have 130,000 plus uh, employees, a lot of really, really smart people with you know uh, great access to great resources. So how do we share that wealth with some of these smaller businesses, right? Who maybe don't have that the access to that. How do we help train them? We actually, within my team, so in that vein, we developed something called the Women Mentoring Women Program. And so for women-owned businesses specifically, we paired them up with a senior J&J leader um, who they do a reciprocal mentoring um, with that individual. And as part of that program, we also um, offer them really robust training where we're bringing outside experts in on, on various things like branding and um, you know how they how to set your business strategies and that type of thing. So uh, for us, that's not we don't just do that with businesses, women-owned businesses that J and J works with. We actually also have some women-owned businesses that we don't work with that we're helping them with outreach such as that um, to help them grow. So to me, that's another example of of some maturing of the program um, and 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 how we've kind of you know, taken, taken a, a step, a step in the right direction beyond just our, our targets. So when you, when you talk about measuring, I'm assuming the measuring's in spend. Is that it, that's a great question. Actually, it is, it is in spend. Um, we're evolving that to be more comprehensive though. And we're actually trying to look even, which we haven't, uh, we haven't figured out just yet, but how do we measure the actual impact of that spend? So how many jobs have we created? How much, how much, um, you know, additional effect have those dollars that we've put into these these groups? How has that um, had a ripple effect? So th- those are the types of things we're still trying to figure out. Um, uh, but it's tough. That's a tough equation. So yes, right now it is in spend. Um, we're evolving to talk more about impact spend um, in the meantime, which is not just our tier one, but it also looks at our tier two programs, right? So where we're helping right. our suppliers develop their their programs and make sure they're working with our suppliers. Um, and, um, and it also includes small business, um, spend as a a category. So that's what we're measuring right now, but it is all spend oriented. So you're going global. This must be, uh, when, when did the the move global start? Was that from the start? Was that just, it wasn't from the start. Um, I'd say, so our program's about 23 years old. I think it was probably about six or seven years ago where we started to move into additional countries. Um, but as with everything, right, that was a very nascent um, uh, venture, if you will. And as we matured in that, then we got clearer about, okay, how do we get into these markets, partner with the governments? How do we partner with local advocacy organizations? How do we make sure that we're making clear definitions and finding the area that we can have the greatest impact? Like which category is of most importance um, to that society, to that group, to that community in which we're, we're working, how can, how can we best and most effectively spend our dollars? So we started to get much more robust about 
kind of the rules and how we're operating, what we're counting, what we're not counting, how we're engaging, how we're determining what outreach programs we're, we're leading with, et cetera. And so now I would say the last three years or so, we've really gotten very clear and very focused on, on certain markets and that we're either already maturing or that we want to add to the program. And so right now we're in about 17 countries, I think was the last count that, that I had in all four regions around the world. What were some of the more interesting things you found when you went from being U.S. or North American centric to global? Like, you know, I'm sure you have a couple of good anecdotes about the uniqueness in one of those 17 countries that maybe surprised you or you just found, you know, uh, really entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. Entertaining is entertaining is a good word. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say, okay, so a, a, a couple of things, some of the surprising things. So I'll, I'll use Japan as an example, right? So when we went into Japan, um, you know, in a lot of ways, we think about Japan as a very progressive, you know, country and like very technologically savvy and very, you know, a, a, a force in a lot of ways, if I could say it that way. Um, but when you get into the country, it operates very, very traditionally, right? And so the role of women is typically as the, the um, caregiver for the children. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of women were leaving the workforce. Well, Japan recently figured out that in order for them to um, still have uh, uh, still be a uh, that um, you know a force and, and have a good uh, uh, GDP, that they need to have the women in their society participate equally um, in in careers and in funding and in financial and all of that that kind of stuff. So um, so, but yet at the same time, for a woman to get a loan in that country they had to bring their dad or their brother or a man who would sponsor that loan. So it was this really interesting, like it's an advanced society in a lot of ways, but super traditional in other ways. But then when the government had that realization of like, oh gosh, we need to like, like women need to participate in this economy for it to be, have a longer term, you know, sustainability to it. Then they were like, okay, how do we do this? How do we get more women participating? And so now it's about how do, how are we breaking down some cultural barriers too? So it gets a little bit uh, a little bit tricky. So I will say things like that were surprising when you really get down into the brass tacks of it. You know, some governments will have um, uh, a program or an intention within their their country, respective country, but they don't really necessarily have the structure enabling it. And and so you you they might say that they want even if you contract with them, they may even tell you they want you to spend a certain amount with a certain type of business, but then they that those businesses aren't available or we, you know, we don't know how to get to them or they're not really holding you accountable to that contract. So, um, and again, it's, it's about head and heart. So it's not just about, about what's in the contract, but we do, you know, we, J and J certainly as a, a pharmaceutical company, as a, a conservative company, very integrity based company company, we have something in a contract, we're going to deliver it. Like we, we would never just sign something. So that, that's sort of odd when you get into those situations, you're like, but I have to, like, I have this commitment and I want to meet the commitment now. How do we, how do we do this? So that, that gets a little tricky, but um and then even another story I'll share too is in the UK, like the UK had their their goals around social enterprises and um, really audacious goals. They got all the big companies together to say, hey, you know, do you want to be part of this commitment? And of course, we raised our hand and we said yes. And we all looked at our, our spend in terms of how much spend we have in that country and made what we thought were reasonable goals. And then it turned out we just didn't have enough social enterprises to even be able to meet that goal, even if we wanted to, even if we wanted to hand it to, <laughs> you know, to someone, we just, the, the, the businesses that were social enterprises weren't the businesses that were what we needed them to, they weren't providing the goods and services that we needed. So, 
um, you know, so we said, okay, well, how do we, how do we adjust that? Right. Then you don't walk away from it. You say, okay, how do we adjust this to make it reasonable and, and make sure we create, you know, help create social enterprises that, that, that meet the needs of what big corporations may want. So, so all those little nuances and the devil's always in the details, right? So when you get into them, it's like, oh, okay, now we uncover something new here. How are we going to, how are we going to get after this one? So, so looking ahead five years, Natalie, um, where, where do you see the, the program evolving? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I talked a little bit, I mentioned a little bit about head and heart. Um, you know, one of the things that I um, have done since I've been in my role, and again, I've been in procurement for a number of years, so I've always had targets related to supplier diversity, but now being the, the person responsible for the overarching program and our enterprise goals, et cetera, um, I'm always trying to encourage because sometimes folks will get too too hung up on their target, like what well, my target, and I need to make it in 12 months, and I need to do that. And while I appreciate that, I always try to remind everyone, like like yes, the goals are there to keep us moving forward. However, what we're really trying to do here is is not make a main goal. What we're really trying to do here is help benefit societies and communities. And so how can we do that? How can we be creative in your category of spend? Or how can we be creative with what you are trying to purchase um, to make sure we're having a positive benefit with that, whether or not it ends up counting towards our goal, right? Whether or not it ends up in a dollar being transacted directly to that supply, you know, that diverse supplier. As I mentioned before, we have a program um, as an example for our women-owned businesses that we, we, we're helping women-owned businesses that we don't even do business with, some of them. So I'm um, giving them great access to really senior leaders at J&J because we believe in the bigger bigger cause there. So um, in the future, you know, I, I will say a couple of things. One, you know, we were the first company, first pharmaceutical company to make the billion-dollar roundtable. Um, and so the billion-dollar roundtable is a U.S.-based um, uh, cohort, if you will, of folks, of, of companies that spend a billion dollars or more with diverse businesses. Um, every year. And so we made that in 2010. And of course, then we wanted to make sure we weren't the first pharmaceutical company to fall off that list. So we've been on a, a charge since then. But, um, you know, we're, we're getting close to cross, crossing that $2 billion mark. So we'll say that that is a focus for us. Uh, impact spending um, is what we talked about earlier around having um, understanding what kind of jobs we're creating and, and understanding the ripple effect in communities of the dollars that we spend. That's definitely something we want to have a better handle on. And, um, you know, quite frankly, I just hope we continue to expand our program in ways that it makes sense um, and uh, continue to grow our spend at a, at a trajectory that, that makes sense. Excellent. So, so can you provide some advice for other corporations that are further behind in the journey than, than where uh, J&J is at this point? Yeah, for sure. So, um, and I, I, there's a, a couple things I would say, um, again, tied to some things we already talked about. One I would say is that leadership support. And, and you know, you can't, you're not going to go out and convince everybody immediately who all these individuals who have tons of business priorities, right? These are not bad people that don't think this is important, but they're just, they have a lot of priorities on their plate. So you have to start small by finding that one or two uh, business partners that really you can have a great win with so that it can start to set the tone and you can tell that story. And that's the second piece is the storytelling, being able to tell the story about a particular supplier and 
um, how they got to be where they are, right? Because that connects the head and the heart, um, but also what their capabilities are. Because just like everything, right, the reason we focus on diversity and inclusion is because we know that unconscious bias is a very real, very human thing. And so a lot of what we contended with and sometimes still do, but it's a lot less frequent is like, oh, but that's a small business. They can't possibly work with us or that's a divert. They don't they don't really know. Like I automatically assign a handicap because they have this this label. And and so you have to find ways sometimes to make those business partners see the reality and the, of the capability of that supplier and not see them as a name. And you have to be creative, right? So sometimes that's you know putting a supplier into a bid or bringing them forward for a particular procurement opportunity or a particular budget spend item. Um, without even labeling them as such, right? Or or getting great recommendations from your peer companies to say, hey, did you have someone in the media and agency space that did a really great job for you in this type of work? Oh, you did? Great. I want to go talk to them. And then you bring them, you shop them to your business partner, right? So so the first thing I would say is is really just about driving the advocacy within your organization and finding those those business leaders who get it and who you can have those wins with, and then and then it will grow, right? This is a long game, it's not a short game. <laughs> so you do have to have right. to really think about what are some of the short-term actions you need to take, but how is that building towards your, your longer term? Um, and, and I think be prepared to deal with some of the challenges. Like I'll never forget one, one year I had, uh, when we were at our goal setting time, I had a business um, leader within procurement who said to me, oh, well, I, I run chemicals and you know how long it takes us to qualify a new chemical, which is a very true statement. How could we possibly, you know, change? And so I said, okay, I understand that. So what we need to do is stop looking at the 12 month business planning cycle. We need to look at the 18, 24 month, the 36 month planning cycle to say, when and where is there a right opportunity to, to insert a given supplier for an opportunity? And maybe it's not in this business plan. You're, you're talking about, you know, two years from now. And that's okay because that's what makes sense in that part of the business. It's not one size fits all. And then once I got that leader to step back and go, oh, okay, so it's not about me making that target just in this 12-month period. It's about a bigger play and, and so that we remove that excuse, right? Because that excuse, sometimes it's intimidating. Um, so I will say for, for companies that are a little bit, Behind, I would say, number one, the, the business sponsorship. Number two, you know, have some patience and knowledge, right? So be open to what people's concerns are or how you can address them, both from the supplier as well as from your internal business partner and, and be a, a problem solver, right? Be, bring the solutions to help bridge those, those two things. And then, and I would say, you know, really, really lean on other, um, again, peer companies uh, uh, and, and to help you think through these different challenges. Because any challenges that you have, they would have had as well. And so how have they overcome those those things? But, you know, uh, connect the head and the heart, you know, keep, keep, it, keep moving forward and, um, you know, engage a business in the right way. Natalie, could you share with us maybe a couple success stories where, um, you know, through J&J's leadership and the work that you and your team have done um, some, you know, real positive impacts that are out there that uh, probably are not directly, you know, society probably doesn't directly attribute them to the work that you're doing, but you can, you can take credit for them. So give us a couple of, couple of big wins, maybe uh, over the course of, you know, what's 23 years now, right? I'm sure there's more than a few that you're really proud of that you really find were a big success. Yeah, there's, there's a couple. So um, one is a a transportation company that we work with and um, it's a black owned business in the U S and years ago, um, you know, they were struggling to get into J and J and, you know, again, we were the 8,000 pound gorilla in in the room and um, 
it it was challenging for them. They didn't quite know how to get their foot in the door. And then when they did, they weren't quite, you know, hitting the mark in terms of what the business partners wanted. But we had a real belief that they were going to be capable of being what we needed them to be. And so we partnered with that company. In fact, one of our senior leaders kind of took that company under their wing. So this kind of falls under the category of outreach, right? Before we were doing business with them and was personally coaching them on like, here's some things you need to think about, or here's where your business plan needs to be a little bit stronger. Here's where your capabilities or your quality needs to be stronger. Um, and really worked with them to, to help them earn their first opportunity, right? So yeah, there's some things we can do inside of J&J, but you got to be ready, right? The supplier has to be ready. They have to be ready to deliver. And so, you know, kudos to this particular leader in J&J who really said, look, I see something here and I, I think that we can get them there. Now they're like one of our biggest, um, you know, uh, providers. We have a great partnership. It's been years now. I think it's at least 15 years. I might, might even be longer. Um, that we're working with them. And, and we're also even sponsoring them for other programs, other leadership programs that they've become a part of as they've kind of moved their, you know, grown their business. Um, because the other thing we don't want to do is grow a business and then be their only, you know, their, or their 90% of their business. Like that's not good for us. That's not good for them. So we never want to do that either. And so this is a really great, great organization that that has done a tremendous job. They earned their spot. They've earned their, earned their stripes and they're keeping them. So um, really, really great partner to us. And we have similar stories and um, in a couple of the other areas, we have a co-packing area that the uh, supplier that we've, we've worked with. We had another supplier who in, in that in the co-packing space who we did business with and then they lost a couple of contracts and then we helped them, you know, get back on track. And we always make sure we give them feedback as well. And that's for any supplier. Why? Why did we move away from you or why didn't you win that bid? Because it's just going to help make them stronger. So, um, yeah, we have a lot of good success stories like that and, and hopefully lots more in the making. You mentioned something that sounds like it might be a real particularly tricky part of this in that I'm guessing, guessing that a fair number of these um, diverse suppliers relative to the size of J&J are relatively small. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that you don't want to be 90% of their mm -hmm. their business and you don't, and they, they don't want you to be 90% of their business. How do you, how do you manage through that size differential between J&J &J and many of these companies that probably are not large corporations. They're probably small family owned businesses. How do you, how do you deal with that? I also want to add a little bit, of, yeah. just a little bit of color onto that. I was talking before uh, the, the podcast and Adley about, um, about some of the terms and conditions and supplier sourcing that goes on in, in, in procurement organizations and the master services agreements with uh, difficult terms uh, that are involved that are pretty, uh, are pretty much large corporate, large suppliers are used to them, but small suppliers are not. So, I just want to broaden that whole question, Steve, to, to a larger context. Thanks, Small sir. organizations, yeah. 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 So um, I'm sorry. So, Steve, your original question was about um, engaging the suppliers and having them be prepared. And so we're not too onerous for them. Yeah. Okay. So, um, again, when we engage with our suppliers, it's all about, and this is also probably ties back to your last question about like recommendations for other companies. Like, don't. Um, you want the match to be a good one. So if a company can only do a, I've always long, and this is outside of supplier, a diverse supplier or not any supplier in my entire procurement career, I've always told suppliers, like, please don't show up and tell me you could be everything I want you to be. Cause that's my first red flag <laughs> that, that, you know, maybe you're not in tune with exactly where your strengths are. Right. So you know, that honest conversation around what can you really do? What, what are you ready for right now? 
um, what are what do we need right now, or how can we maybe chunk off what we need or separate or think about what we need differently so that we can start with a smaller piece of business with a given supplier so we can kind of test test run and grow together. Because um, again, I'll tell you, as a large corporation, we have we do have, it's not just contracts, it's also things like quality standards and things. We have very, very high standards. And so sometimes those can be, you know, difficult for small businesses to meet. So, so we want to work with them in a way that they can start to get used to what our expectations are and be honest with themselves. Is this something they want to do? Is this something they can do? Is this something they can grow into? Um, but we usually try to start small where there is a size consideration, right? Um, And then as we grow with suppliers, we have very frank conversations with them too about like, well, how much of our our business, of your business do we represent and and how can we help you diversify? And, you know, we we have very open, transparent conversations with suppliers like that. Um, Particularly, um, we have supplier relationship managers tied to to each of our um, supplier, not all of our supplier relationships, but certain supplier relationships. And that's a very frequent, constant conversation. So uh, we keep an eye on that with our diverse supplier base. We keep an eye on that with our top um, suppliers that, that, you know, we need for, for our products and such. So, um, I'd say that's the way we do it. As far as it, it goes around contracts, uh, you know, listen, no, nobody likes <laughs> like cor- big corporations contracts. It's not just small and diverse suppliers. Um, you know, they're and especially in an industry like pharma, that is a very litigious, happy environment right now. Right. And let's, let's be honest. Um, we have to be smart about we J and J and we pharmaceutical companies or any company needs to just be smart about how they contract. So it is always this balance of, of um, where, what's, what's the goalpost, right? I had an attorney I worked with and J and J was talking about the goalpost. Are we starting, you know, this far apart or the goalposts coming in, you know, much closer. We're starting at a, at a more reasonable starting point versus the, you know, hundred yards apart and how are we going to wiggle our way towards, towards the center? So, um, we do just in general, again, not specific to diverse suppliers and small suppliers, but in general, we are looking very closely and have been and continue to evolve our, our contracting practices and how are we contracting in a fit for purpose way, right? Including considering the size of the business and including considering their, their cash availability and what we can expect from them and uh, what's reasonable and all of that. So in general, I will say, again, not supplier diversity specific, but as a procurement organization, we are very much focused on fit for purpose contracting, contracting mechanisms so that we're not throwing this 100 page MSA. Actually, I think ours was 150 at one point. It's not anymore, but uh it's not even pages. You got to yes, wait. Yeah, right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, down to something much more reasonable. We also have short form agreements for when those are more appropriate. Sometimes we'll just right. do PO terms and conditions. So we really are, are focused on that anyway, because that it we should be right. We need to be we need to, to be more agile. Very good. Steve, uh, I don't know if you, you uh, want to ask the, the last question. Sure. Um, so, Natalie, uh, of course, of late, and maybe it's long overdue, there's been a lot in the news media about racial and social justice issues. And so, you know, these are on people's, people's mind all the time. And, and that's a good thing. Um, no different here at Penn State. At J&J, what are you doing to address some of these challenges that we're facing as society uh, in, in ways that in ways that you can share. Yeah, yeah. So J and J actually I mentioned to you earlier that we have um, 
our, our stated purpose is to change the trajectory of health for humanity. And again, very, very daunting words, but we don't want them to be just words, right? That's not, not who we are. So in, in the wake of the, you know, racial and the, the heightened awareness around racial and social injustice, um, Johnson & Johnson actually created our Race to Health Equity and so we have pledged um, $500 million towards various programs um, to help us achieve um, racial um, equity within our um, within the world, really. And so I'm, I'm going to look at my notes because I don't want to get this wrong, but there's three key areas that we're, we're doing this. Um, one is around our communities. So that's about how do we um, provide equitable health care for underserved communities? So what are some things that we can do to address that? The second one is um, a diverse and inclusive corporate culture. So that's all about inside um, Johnson & Johnson and have, making sure we have a diverse and inclusive workforce. And then the third is about enduring alliances. So how do we have partnerships and alliances that combat racial and social um, health determinants? So those are kind of the three big buckets, but it's everything from like, when you look at the programs underneath there, certainly our supplier diversity inclusion program is one, um, and where we're doubling down on some of our, our focus areas there, um, black and Hispanic owned businesses in the U S for example, um, all the way to how are we ensuring we have diversity in clinical trials, right? And how are we creating health programs that make access a lot easier for underserved populations in remote locations, for example. So it's really a wide variety of programs, but but we feel very, you know, again, J&J has always been very committed in this space. We've always had, you know, an internal focus on, on DE&I. We've always had our supplier diversity program, and this has just given it more, even more life than it had before, I guess, is what I would say. And, and so we're really doubling down and, and, and very clearly wanted to shape our focus around how are we combating it within healthcare because it's a really really important part of this whole um, this whole struggle. Well, thank you for sharing that, and 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 Natalie, I guess we'll probably move to close on this. Uh, thank you for joining us for the Supply Chain Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. Happy to do it and uh, sharing your sharing your passion for supplier diversity and inclusion, and also procurement citizenship on a broader term. So. Again, uh, thank you for joining Absolutely. us today. Yeah, real pleasure. Real pleasure having you here. Thank today, you so Natalie. much. Thanks for, for having me and uh, appreciate it. Always, always fun to spend time with my alma mater. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.